This is People in the Know. I'm Ken Root. This week's discussion is about weather. Now, every farmer can get excited about that, but it goes a lot deeper than the daily temperatures and precipitation. We're going to talk about the National Weather Service and its ability to warn us when a disastrous weather event is coming. Think tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, wind, snow, and ice that impact travel. Brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. We are committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. My guest is a very well-known weatherman, business owner, and expert. He is a meteorologist, Mike Smith. He has been a meteorologist since the 1970s. And I know that because we worked together at WKY Television in Oklahoma City as our first jobs. Mike was first a TV meteorologist in Oklahoma City, then in Wichita, and then in St. Louis. But he went back to Wichita and founded a weather forecasting company called Weather Data. Long career, amazing accomplishments, but Mike is not ready to rest on those. In fact, he wrote a book called Warnings, the true story of how science tamed the weather. We talked about it earlier this year on this podcast platform, and I highly recommend it. But he has also been suggesting and offering examples of problems at the storied National Weather Service. Absent warnings of tornadoes, botched snow and blizzard forecasts, and so much of this has gone on that he has proposed the establishment of a National Disaster Review Board. Mike, it's good to talk to you again. Ken, it's always my pleasure. Nice to be here. Let's start with the forecast just a week ago by the National Weather Service in your state of Kansas, it appears they missed that pretty badly. They were on the low side, and it became a pretty treacherous storm, didn't it? Well, actually, they were on the zero side. Uh, a week ago today, the National National Weather Service, the one that's based outside of Washington, D.C., put out a hazardous weather outlook. Now, that's something they do 365 days a year. And it was for the following three to seven days, meaning it would have begun the day after Thanksgiving. And in it, they forecast zero hazardous weather, no cold wave, uh, no snow of more than four inches anywhere in the lower 48 states. And as you know, over the weekend, as much as 11 inches of snow fell at multiple locations in Kansas, for the first time in my memory, and I'm not sure it's ever happened before, I-35, the Kansas Turnpike in the Flint Hills of Kansas, had to be closed because of snow accumulation and numerous accidents. Now, it's not uncommon that I-70 is closed, but the Kansas Turnpike, because it's a Mexico to Canada interstate, one of only three in the country, they use heroic measures to try to keep it open, and they just couldn't. And considering it was during the Thanksgiving travel period that the snow that began in Wyoming, Colorado, went to Kansas, Missouri, parts of Iowa, Illinois, and it did affect on Sunday air travel at Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, that was a huge miss. And how they could have missed it is, is utterly perplexing because 
all of their own computer models, as well as the non-model techniques, were in almost perfect synchronization that this snow was going to occur. And that's why we so desperately need a National Disaster Review Board to look at these natural disasters and the poor quality at times of forecast and warnings of these disasters. It, it, it is just, I, I don't even have words to describe how bad this forecast miss was. Now, other people like myself on my daily blog, which is uh, uh, Mike Smith Enterprises blog.com, um, were forecasting the snow. AccuWeather was forecasting the snow. Most of the TV stations were forecasting the snow. But remember, if you're trying to travel from, say, St. Louis to Denver, uh, you're not looking at the TV station in Kansas City or Wichita that's forecasting that. You're looking at something national, and that's where you turn to the National Weather Service, and they just drop the ball. Well, I'm surprised. Uh, I've watched uh, your postings, uh, LinkedIn, and also on your blog, uh, the number of tornado warnings that were absent. In other words, an area had a tornado, and it wasn't just a pop-up tornado. It was a slow-building tornado, fairly strong, and they didn't report it a few times this past year. Oh, my gosh. There were 14 times uh, over the summer and very early autumn where we had tornadoes of F1 or greater intensity that did considerable damage. Four of them were fatal, and the National Weather Service had very little or no tornado warning. And Ken, I think for people to, to understand the problem, I, I'd like to do a little history, starting back when you and I were in Oklahoma. Now, actually starting sooner than that, the first what we would call tornado warning from then Weather Bureau, now it's called the National Weather Service, was on May 20th, 1957 for the Ruskin Heights tornado in South Kansas City. And it was a huge success and it saved lots of lives. So the Weather Bureau got into the tornado warning business, but we weren't very good at it. Uh, the radars were quite primitive at that time. And most of the time, tornado warnings were based on a policeman or fireman calling in a tornado report, and the National Weather Service would look at the blob on the radar and would try to extrapolate downstream where the storm was going to be. M moving forward to the 1970s, we got pretty good at forecasting and warning of the big tornadoes, like the Union City, Oklahoma tornado uh, in 1973, or the big tornado outbreak in Oklahoma in 1974. But one of the hangups we had is even though by that time we could warn of the big tornadoes, the warning system was so slow that sometimes they couldn't even get the tornado warnings out on a timely basis because there were so many of them, they were clogging up the slow teletype circuits. Finally, by the 1980s, we had enough speed to get out the tornado warnings. And in the 90s, we got the National Network of Doppler Radars, which made a huge difference. 
And so the period from about 2000 to 2010 was the golden era of tornado warnings. We were accurately catching about three quarters of all tornadoes and even more when you consider only the strong tornadoes, the ones that are most likely to kill people. And we were getting 13 minutes of advance notice on average for tornadoes. Now it's, it's counterintuitive, but 13 to 15 minutes, actual sociological research has shown is the ideal for tornado warnings. You don't want too little because you need time to gather the kids and take them to the basement, but you don't want too much. Uh, you there are politicians who talk about, we need one hour tornado warnings. That's a terrible idea. A one hour tornado warning is not going to be very accurate. And number two, it's gonna tempt people to get in the car and drive across town and buy batteries for the flashlights and traffic jams will occur and there are going to be lots of problems if we try to do one hour take cover messages. So everything was just about perfect from 2000 to 2010. Then since 2011, the quality of tornado warnings in the United States has gone down considerably. Um, in fact, the likelihood that you're going to get an advance warning of a tornado has dropped to by a full 20%. And the amount of lead time, meaning the advance notice of a tornado, has gone from 13 minutes down to only eight minutes. That's not enough. And we don't know why that's the case, mainly because the National Weather Service, and by the way, those figures are the National Weather Service's own figures. The National Weather Service is in denial. It, it will not concede there's a, a problem. An investigative reporter in Kansas City two weeks ago did a story about this and interviewed both me and also the head of the National Weather Service. And he just denies there's a problem, even though his own statistics show it. So that's why we need an independent body to figure out what these problems are and what those possible solutions are. When was the last time you heard uh, of a major commercial airliner crash? It's been a long time. In fact, a major crash, it's been more than 20 years. And that's because we have the National Transportation Safety Board that's non-political and highly respected. And everyone from, say, a Boeing, the people who make the planes, to the airlines, to the people who work for airlines, all of them respect what the NTSB recommends and usually implement it. And that has made air travel as well as highway and railroad travel much safer. We need the same thing for earthquakes, tornadoes, and other natural disasters. Mike, I, through the years, have uh, observed fairly closely the way that meteorologists work with the National Weather Service. And, uh, of course, the National Weather Service has gotten better and better technology. So have the TV stations and, uh, and the people who are actual meteorologists who are warning the public or advising the public each day on the weather. 
And I thought there was a camaraderie there that was uh, working both ways. But I guess I'd have to ask you, are those meteorologists you're talking to now becoming rather frustrated or even fearful that the National Weather Service isn't coming through what it needs to uh, and uh, they could uh, catch the backlash of that if there's a bad disaster within their service area? That's a very good and insightful question, Ken. Uh, most TV meteorologists have a loving relationship with the National Weather Service. And the National Weather Service deserved lots of praise for the tornado warning system. If you read my book, Warnings, the True Story of How Science Tamed the Weather, you'll find it's filled with praise for the modern tornado warning system and the National Weather Service. But the problem is there are a lot of people, who, because there's no state licensing of meteorologists, who on TV call themselves meteorologists, but really are not. They have a dependent relationship with the National Weather Service, and they simply won't criticize them no matter how badly the Weather Service may miss a given forecast or warning. We had some, that, some of that in Kansas City after my report aired, and I look at meteorologists, especially those on TV, as people who should have the same ideal standard as journalists, that if someone does something really well, they deserve praise. But if they screw up, as the Weather Service has multiple times this year, um, that needs to be pointed out and corrective uh, measures should be suggested. So Ken, I, I, I don't know. Um, the TV meteorologists are probably going to be the last people who uh, go for change because, like I say, so many of them have, I think, an unhealthy dependence on the Weather Service. And I think it's going to be really important to have objective people look at this problem and see what the solutions are. Now, I have a couple guesses as to where the problem comes from, if you'd like me to share them with our listeners. Well, I would, but let me ask you a couple of things first, and then I'd like to get to your sure. potential for a National Disaster Review Board. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, are there widely used medications that can negatively impact our hearing? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. And, you know, when you're looking, when we're talking about, you know, medications, the average person over the age of seven, or over the age of 55, excuse me, 72% of people over the age of 55 take at least one drug. And two-thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions, occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three-quarters of the you know, population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. 
Um, some of the big ones are diuretics. So people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, um, you know, um, oxycotton, you know, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that. Um, chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill, little blue pill uh, can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different, uh, you know, medications, whether they're over the counter prescribed, um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are. If there are other medications, maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your, with your providers to really understand, are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking. And sometimes, there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss, and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. I'm talking with Mike Smith, who is a uh, longtime meteorologist. I regret that he's a longtime meteorologist because he's about the same age I am. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went through a career in farm broadcasting uh, in parallel with your time, and we overlapped with quite a number of people. And the meteorologists that I know that are truly in the industry, the ones that people really salute and count on and have a strong history, um, I'm sure they, they try to be as independent as they can working with the National Weather Service. But what if they get to a point, maybe they're there, that the National Weather Service does not issue a severe blank alert, and then they step up and do it? Are they risking anything by themselves stepping out there like that? They're only risking their professional reputation if they're wrong. Well, that's a I, lot. It, yeah, it is a lot. It's gotten so bad that Channel 9 in Oklahoma City is now, or at least this past spring, was running uh, promotional advertising saying, we don't wait for the National Weather Service. Mm. That gives you an idea. Uh, the, the meteorologists in Oklahoma City um, have long had a less dependent relationship with the Weather Service than most other markets. It, that's partly because the station we work for, WKY in Oklahoma City, actually invented tornado warnings. Now, the first government tornado warning was in 1957, but WKY was issuing tornado warnings since the early 50s. And so the feeling sort of is, hey, we invented these things. The Weather Service isn't going to tell us what to do. And they're both good and bad sides to that that I won't get into. But in Oklahoma City, the problem of NWS tornado warnings has been recognized. And the TV stations have gotten pretty bold now about talking about it. But but that market is the exception. 
Yeah, but I, no, there's no liability or any problem like that. The Supreme Court, in fact, has looked at this issue several times and has said uh, you cannot hold meteorologists responsible for inaccurate forecasts because it's well known meteorology is an inexact science. So my theory that if you just shot a couple of meteorologists who were wrong about forecasting rain, you wouldn't have uh, bad forecast anymore. <laughs> well, that could be. I often suggest that people uh, during periods like like this past weekend in Kansas, where a major snow is is being forecast, flip around and and compare the forecast, jot them down, and then when it's over, um, see which one was correct, and then go with that person, uh, regardless of what their personal, um, you know, whether the person has got great hair or crummy hair or whatever, make your TV weather choice based on how accurate the for their forecasts are. To stay on the light side just one more time for a moment, though, you always had a great line when people would tell you that <laughs> they got too much rain or they were sick of that snow, and you always said what? I'm in marketing, not production. <laughs> well, um, those of you who don't know the area of uh, South uh, of Wichita, Oklahoma City, North Texas, and that kind of an oval through there, they get so many tornadoes that do so much damage that the meteorologists there are truly, in my view, a cut above in their capabilities to uh, deal with life-threatening situations. If you're not, you need to, to leave there because you'll be under the gun uh, way too often in the middle of the night. But I uh, know that there are other areas of the country where meteorologists are not necessarily chosen by their, their uh, skills in that area. In fact, I'm noticing a lot more are, um, how do I say this, pretty faces uh, get the dominant role, it seems like. But I don't want to go there. I want to go with how can we get to where that you can show competency based upon your sources, which is what I've done for my career, um, and know that you can trust people, National Weather Service now particularly, uh, continually through the years to be able to work with you. What's your theory on why that they have gone downhill, as you say they have? I think there was real value in learning to try to warn of tornadoes using black and white non-Doppler radar and then colorize non-Doppler radar. You had to really think about what was occurring in order to make the decision to warn or not warn. However, my generation of meteorologists who did all of that is, they're, we're gone. Uh, Tom Skilling at WGN in Chicago is probably the last one on the air in, in a market of any size, and he's retiring next month. And there are just, you know, Gary England in Oklahoma City, Jim Williams in Oklahoma City, um, these well-known meteorologists who'd been doing it 30, 40, 50 years who really knew their stuff, they've retired. 
Well, back in the 1990s, when the National Weather Service was issuing, or I'm sorry, was installing all of the Doppler radars, every single one of the meteorologists in the Weather Service had to go through a four-week training school to learn how to use the radar, and that took place in Oklahoma. Every single one of them had to graduate from that school. That school no longer exists. And I have had meteorologists from across the country from the National Weather Service seek me out, call me and say, Mike, you can't use my name. And I say, okay. And they tell me that not only do some of these meteorologists not even go to school, in one case in Pennsylvania, he said that the meteorologist in charge made the new meteorologist sec sit next to a senior meteorologist during a severe thunderstorm period for one hour. And after that, the meteorologist in charge certified the new meteorologist as trained in radar. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting people who have very, very little training being put into these life and death situations, and they aren't prepared to do it. Now, that's my hypothesis. There may be other factors at work here. There are some indications um, that the Weather Service, at least at some offices, is making the tornado warning process too complicated. I think that's a, a genuine possibility. Uh, as to other things, I don't know. This is why it needs an independent review. Well, I was wondering a while back, independent of this, about uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and good or bad, how it could be used. And I was thinking about weather forecasting. Yes. Being able to take the technology of that you have outlined that's grown and improved so much in, in showing all these radars and predictions, and then taking the human out of that. Do you think that's a possibility it would improve our predictions on weather? Yes, uh, but but there's a hesitancy there. I think it is quite likely that AI, beginning in about five years, there are people working on it right now, today. I know some of them. But in order to, to get the AI trained correctly, it's probably going to take about another five years. However, the AI has the possibility, remember, if there is such a thing as artificial intelligence, there has to be such a thing as artificial stupidity. <laughs> and, and I do fear that there's the real possibility that AI could get into a situation that's unique. By that, I'm talking like a Joplin tornado that is completely wrapped in rain, which is a non-standard configuration of an EF-5 tornado on radar. Now, the National Weather Service blew the Joplin tornado and 161 people died. We got it correct at AccuWeather. We gave our clients a half hour's notice and they literally moved railroad equipment out of the path of the tornado and saved their lives. But, the Weather Service missed it. 
the National Weather Service's computer algorithm in the Joplin tornado missed it. It had it going northeast instead of straight east. Northeast would have missed Joplin. It actually went straight east and went right through the city. I worry that AI could make that sort of giant error. And once you introduce AI, it's going to be really difficult for humans to keep up their independent thinking and independent skill. Just like our highly trained forecasters at AccuWeather, where every single meteorologist had to pass two tests and a full month of training before we ever allowed them to issue a storm warning. And then even after they'd passed the test and even after they'd had the training, they still had to sit with an experienced meteorologist and prove they were capable on a day-to-day -day basis. And we let people go who didn't make it through the training because this is life and death. Yep. Well, we got the Joplin right. The Weather Service didn't. What's going to happen when meteorologists get dependent on AI? Are they going to have enough independent thinking skills to overrule the computer? Or are we going to see some really worse errors than we're even seeing today? I would say in everything you've said, I latch on to it. You use the words uh, artificial uh, stupidity. I would use the word um, ignorance, and ignorance doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means that you have not experienced that to learn what you need to learn. So you don't know, you know, basically what you don't know at that time. But I agree with you that over time, I think we could make it to where it would be very helpful. But I'm concerned to finish up with you about the National Weather Service itself and whether or not what you are discussing about the potential for a National Disaster Review Board could really help. Um, give me the layout of it. It's almost like it ought to be a National Natural Disaster Review Board, it would seem. Yeah, that, that might be a better name for it, a National Disaster Review Board, Ken. That, that's a very good point. Um, first of all, it should not be located in Washington, D.C. It, it's amazing that the NTSB has managed to stay uh, non-political, given the environment that they are in in Washington. Um, I, I would say Wichita because it's not a big federal city. There's not Kansas City has huge federal installations. So does Oklahoma City, um, St. Louis. It's going to be tough in a city like Kansas City or Oklahoma City that has just so many federal people already to not get in this federal mindset. If you you lived in Washington, you know what I'm talking about. I do. Yeah. And so, and then of course, Wichita is the aviation capital of the country, and there are places you can rent jets here in literally a couple of hours' notice. And so if there's a big disaster and they have to fly to the damage track of a tornado, let's say, or the area of a giant earthquake in California, you're essentially two hours away from the entire country and you have fantastic aviation facilities here to make it possible 
to get you there. The Natural Disaster Review Board uh, should be comprised of meteorologists, social scientists, and those social scientists, again, need to be independent of the government. There need to be technology experts in warning communications and the nuts and bolts of how that occurs. And then they need to run their operation much like the NTSB. When there's a plane crash, the NTSB has a 24 by seven go team. Um, within, if, if it's a big enough disaster, they're in the air in a couple of hours, they're flying there with their team of experts which for an airplane will a crash will include people in propulsion, meteorology, uh, human factors, meaning human factors is uh, how well did the pilot do? How well did the chairs uh, protect the, and seat belts protect the passengers? Uh, they're on the they're on the ground within a few hours. They're they're collecting data. They're interviewing people. They're going through the debris and learning what they can learn from that. And that's often a surprisingly large amount. I would say the Natural Disaster Review Board would operate in almost exactly the same way. And then they have a public hearing where people can come in who, you know, were eyewitnesses or have something to say about it. And then after that, they write a first draft of their report and then a final report. And then that the final report is given to Congress. It's given to all the participants. The report would be given to the NWS. It would be given to the president and his administration. It would be given to AccuWeather if they wanted to look at how AccuWeather handled the storm. AccuWeather would get a copy. And so I see there's just no downside to this if it's done well and kept apolitical like the NTSB has been. Well, Mike, it's always great to hear your perspective and your warnings uh, that uh, what we're doing now may lead to some real problems later on. Mike Smith has been my guest. He is uh, the author of a book that I really am surprised a meteorologist could write this good a book. I mean, this readable. (laughs) It's readable. It's called Warnings, the True Story of How Science Tamed the Weather. And uh, the proposal that you have, But I would think to finish up with, if I were a meteorologist now with um, responsibilities within a broadcast area, as we know them, I would feel myself being very uncomfortable as to how I was going to handle the next time we saw storm clouds coming. I would be fearful that the National Weather Service wouldn't take the lead and I would have to, or the consequences could be very strong. Well, but that's that's the reason you have meteorologists on TV and not what we used to call weather girls who were there only because they were attractive and knew nothing about weather. Um, You know, that that's what your job is as a meteorologist to take care of your viewers, tell them what you really believe in your best professional judgment is going to happen. I've been telling meteorologists now for the last two or three years you're going to have to be willing and able, professionally able, to go on the air and say, I I would leave the term watch and warning to the National Weather Service, but I would go on the air and say, if you're in Springfield, whatever Springfield, doesn't matter, but if you're in a town 
field, you should really consider uh, going to the basement now because we believe this storm has got the potential to cause a tornado or highly damaging winds. And if it were me and my family, I'd be taking shelter. That's how I would convey it without using the term tornado warning so that um, uh, they can fulfill their professional obligation, but not create confusion with the National Weather Service's official warnings. Very good advice. Very good information. Something definitely to think about and watch and see whether Congress takes this up in the future. There have been a few attempts in the past. They may have been a little too broad. We'll see how it goes. Mike Smith, thank you very much. It's always great to talk with you. Always great to talk to you. Merry Christmas to you, Ken, and to all of our listeners. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week.